Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches they never changed anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man 
and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he has he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, uh, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, he'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen.
gentrification of races. It's, just, it's green. The color of gentrification is green. Or if you have to add two colors, green and red. Green is for economic power. Red is for deficits, financial deficits. Um, but in that song, uh, the writer who happened to be an American white woman wrote about her town that she grew up in, Akron, Ohio. Demographics primarily white. Akron, Ohio has been gentrified, but if you go to parts of Asia at, globally, it's a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon. So I'm going to play another clip here, which just tells you, will tell you how you can capitalize or protect your neighborhood when it comes to gentrification. We call this piece Balling on Baltic Avenue based on a Monopoly game. Before I get started with this video, I just want to personally thank the brother Fred Hassan Powell of the Morale Facebook page for sharing this social political cartoon which is currently displayed in this video. I always big up brothers who are artists like him, my man Will James, Alex K. Art, Chris Miller, and others because their pictures speak volumes. They don't have to say one word because as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. In fact, I want y'all to take a good look at this picture, which shows a brother with his hat flipped to the back, telling the bald-headed brother that he's hungry as fuck. When the brother attempts to hand him his own fishing rod so he can get some fish on his own, he gets verbally assaulted. No, nigga, I want some fish. Fuck out of here with that coon shit. Man, if you look closer, you'll see that the brother that says he's hungry got a fresh pair of Jordans on his feet. And once again, I want to thank you, Fred, for sharing that photo because it is a perfect warm-up for what I'm getting ready to bring up next. Look, last week, I had to stop past a gas station, and when I went in, I took a quick glance over to the newsstand, and I saw the Washington Post. 
the first thing that caught my eye was something that you normally don't see on the cover of a newspaper, which was a few straggling pants sagging brothers sitting on a stoop of a building outside. I didn't have the time to read the paper in the gas station because I had to fly, but I checked the article online when I got home, and I was just flabbergasted. I want you all to check it out for yourself in the description box. It is the December 9th edition of the Washington Post, and the front cover story is a look back at the riots which took place in Baltimore this past April following the death of Freddie Gray. The Post took the time to interview a few of the residents and get their personal take on how things have been and has any positive change comes to the streets of Baltimore after the riot. And one of the brothers that they interviewed was a young man that was out there on the streets peddling drugs from time to time, and he stated that he ended up finding out shortly after the riot that there were a few storefront apartments that were up for sale and that they were only selling for just $5,000 a piece. He then said that when he ran the idea of getting together and investing in the neighborhood past several brothers that he was out there selling drugs with on the streets, all of them told him no. And see, this goes to what brothers like myself, Sean James, and many others who are right here on YouTube have been telling y'all about this modern Negro. Okay, This Baltimore brother that was interviewed by the Washington Post had a great idea and the right frame of mind to purchase this storefront property while the price is extremely low. But the rest of the Negroes that are around him ended up dragging him into the quagmire of apathy that surrounds the Negro landscape. See a dude. See that picture in your face. Here a dude. That bitch good, nigga. Oh, oh. Beat our motherfucking ass. She's like you a motherfucking nigga. Beat our motherfucking ass. That nigga can't. That nigga hurting himself. You from Nuke State. It's over. It's over. It's over. Look, the main spot that this brother was looking to purchase had five rooms between both of the upstairs levels, and it just needed a little bit of furnishing. These spots could have easily been rented out to tenants or used as cheap housing by family and friends that could have worked a legitimate business out of that storefront. The Negro just don't get it. Because the more legitimate storefronts, strip mall shops, apartments, and tenements you own would lessen the police targeting you. Because then you can do what the foreigners and white folks that own these places do, which is hire the police to work security at your properties and places of business. Why do you think they don't go upside the heads of these foreigners? Because they step to the police officers and let them know that they have work for them. These foreigners and white folks that own and run these storefronts hire the cops, and if they don't pay them with cash, they give them free merchandise and meals on the house, so they in turn look out for them. And half these cops do moonlighting security at these places, even when they are on duty, because all they got to do most of the time is just drive through with a squad car or do a quick foot patrol right near the business or apartment housing units that are being rented out. 
This is why they don't give the Chan family or any Chinese youngster any problems when they see them in the hood by their dry cleaners. This is why they don't bother Mr. or Mrs. Akbar or any Arab kids that they see near the gas stations they own. This is why they don't mess with Miss Yee or any of her grandkids that are close to the nail salon she owns. Because they take a small percentage of the proceeds and pad the local policeman's pockets. And see, your typical foolish Negro that would challenge what I just told you will say, well, see, you insinuating that we got to bribe the police for them to stop brutalizing us. But they, like most, don't know anything about capitalism. It is a game of economic musical chairs. I just gave you the analogy when I mentioned all the foreign families that own all the storefronts, strip malls, and rental properties. Who is the only one who is left standing up with no businesses or property to speak of when the music is done playing and the cops roll through the neighborhood? That's us yapping back and forth when the music stops and they tell our loitering asses to get moving or catch a bruising. That's us walking around with sagging pants and glow-in-the-dark fluorescent color wigs like this sister that you see right here tossing rocks during the riot last April. Now, she's throwing rocks and expressing her anger and frustration, but she has a fresh weave on top of her head, which helped pay some of the officers that broke Freddie Gray's back. So who is the sellout and coon, black folks? And think about it. If you own some of those storefronts and control the flow of unlaundered, legitimate-made currency that comes through those areas, you can do your illegal dirt all day long without that much harassment from the local authorities. You might draw attention from a few alphabet gang organizations like the DEA, FBI, and others, but the local guys aren't going to pay that much attention because you're helping them pay bills and you're putting food in their stomach. And since I brought up the subject of illegal activity and you pan-sagging clowns love to talk about how gangster you are, why don't you do what some of the Irish, Italian, Jewish, and Polish immigrants your dumbass keeps trying to emulate did by legitimizing some of your hustles and using the same police force that chases you around the neighborhood as a shield. See, most Negroes will try to tell you that we are always at the end of a nightstick or baton or getting showered with bullets just because we are black. But ask yourself a question. Why aren't that many Ethiopians and West Africans getting mollywhopped and punished to the extent that many so-called African Americans are in the U.S.? Remember, they're just as black and sometimes way darker than us. But why are there fewer cases of them being brutalized and killed by the police, like we saw with Amadou Diallo or Abner Louima, both of which took place in New York? Why so few cases compared to us so-called Afro-Americans? It's because they're smart enough to own businesses, restaurants, furniture stores, parking lots, etc., and pay the cops to look the other way so their fellow countrymen aren't harmed in any way. That's the logical thing to do. But you can't tell this Negro from America that because you're still living off the backwards principle and creed of entitlement, which these liberals drafted up for us long ago. Instead of assessing this situation from a global perspective and seeing that everyone else seems to be purchasing everything around us so they can live comfortable lives and keep us at a position of marginalization as opposed to putting themselves in that boat, the Negro man and woman in the U.S. will counter it by saying, see, I object because my tax dollars pay for the police not to harass me. No, they don't, you imbecile. 
especially after Uncle Sam rapes their paycheck just like he rapes everybody else's. Now, your pro-whack movement pseudo-black nationalist leaders will call me a coon for telling you this, but this is something that they know firsthand. They also know that you more than likely won't view this phenomenon from all angles because you're still under the influence of the can't-we-all-just-get-along flavor Kool-Aid most black folks drank after the post-civil rights movement era, thinking that all the bigotry-enhanced physical assaults and beatdowns we took during chattel slavery and Jim Crow had an exclusive cutoff date to them which is why every single year one of these highly publicized police brutality incidents takes place. There's some dumb Negro that says, I don't believe that in 2087 this is still happening to black people. Yeah, it is. And it's going to keep on happening in 2088 if you don't adopt a different way of thinking, dummy. Your pseudo-black nationalists won't tell you that you are mostly to blame for this continually happening because they want you to keep feeling sorry for yourself and attend more lectures and debates where they argue over whether or not a woman is God or which master teacher's philosophy is better to follow. But I'm here to tell you right now, black folks, that we don't need to attend a gazillion seminars travel with a million other jugheads to commemorate the anniversary of a march that never led to mass black improvement, or study the teachings of some philosophical doctor with 10 degrees to find a solution to our problem. This brilliant brother from Baltimore that was interviewed in the December 9th edition of the Washington Post, who more than likely didn't even finish high school, just gave us the answer. And if you're wondering why I titled this thing Ballin' on Baltic Avenue, I did so as a way of saluting one of my grandfathers. See, long ago when I was a very little boy, he taught me how to play Monopoly. I was about seven years old, and I was all geeked up racing around the board to buy Boardwalk and Park Place. And he said, go right on ahead. He let me do it and said, I'll just buy a Baltic, Mediterranean, Oriental, and all these other properties that you aren't even thinking about. So as the game went on, and I only owned Boardwalk, Park Place, and Pacific, I think, he had all the other properties, the railroads, the waterworks, the electric company, and a whole bunch of hotels and houses on all of them while I was looking silly. And I ended up having to sell what I owned and wait for that $200 paycheck once I passed go. Once it finally set in, that I lost the game, he chuckled and told me, son, you got to own what's in the ghetto before you walk around the block. And that lesson that my grandfather Dave, rest his soul, taught me still applies to this very day. Ownership is a universal language, no matter what culture or ethnicity you come from, because it regulates the sort of relationship you're going to have with most of the people around you. Okay, and it's left here. Uh, today's podcast is titled uh, It's My House Industry, so if you play that piece back that we just played, plus the Malcolm X piece that we played at the beginning, 
you can see all the opportunities that was played in that last audio clip. Now, tomorrow, uh, we're going to continue uh, on a topic that we talked about on well, the day before yesterday. Um, which was um, dealing with uh, college athletes. Should they be paid? Should they be paid? So we're going to pick up back on that that topic tomorrow. Although I'm going to give a little preview today, uh, and we're going to approach it from a solutions standpoint, from a solution standpoint. Now, <clears throat> I want to throw out some stats because um, I'm going to throw these stats as well as other stats out there tomorrow to start the podcast and then let people weigh in on it. Some people think that college athletes should be should receive a paycheck. Uh, they say college sports makes billions of dollars, and the athletes, particularly in football and basketball, which are mostly black folks, they're on a losing end of the stick. Now, I'm a former scholarship athlete in basketball, student athlete in basketball. I don't think that way. Um, but tomorrow, and we had we had a two-hour conversation on it the day before yesterday, and it, it, people split. Some people, actually most, more people, particularly black folks, they think that the athlete should be paid. Let me throw this out there because we want to go with some stats. And like I say, tomorrow we're going to bring out more stats. Um, the student athlete. Now, this is just basketball, because football the numbers are greater, and I'll have those for tomorrow. At the University of Kentucky, those basketball players on scholarship, and the University of Connecticut, and the other schools. I'm just picking out two. And every athletic scholarship has a cash value. That's something that most people don't talk about, particularly when they're talking about should college athletes get paid. Okay. All scholarships, and there's no such thing. It's total bullshit. It, put it this way. There's total bullshit. That there's no such thing as a free education. These college scholarships, these college uh, athletes, it's a contract that you sign. Me coming out of high school, while I was still in high school, my senior year, and it still goes on a day, you have to read and sign a contract. Hopefully your parents sit down and read it with you. The coaches are typically there, too. It's called a letter of intent. It's a con- in letter of intent, and that switches over to a contract. When I was in, and I think this is still in now, they, they used to give full scholarships for four years, no questions asked in basketball or football. All right. When I when I came in, and I think this still goes on today, there were one-year contracts because a lot of people got four-year contracts and didn't go to class and still came and, you know, ate up the university's food and all it and didn't play no – you know, they, they didn't fulfill – there under the contract. So it's not it's not free. It is a signed and written contract that you 
supply or the student athlete supplies two two things. Go to class and pass. Because if you don't pass, just like every normal student, you get on academic probation, and and that's the end of the contract. There is no year two, three, and four. So part of that contract that these student athletes sign, they have to go to class and pass. Anybody who's going through a college curriculum or even community college curriculum, you have to work. Going to school is a job. Number two, they have to go out and make the team. Not all people who sign that contract actually make the team. And after you make the team, you know, you got to show up for practice, not get in trouble out in the community. It's, 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 it's a grind. So it, now you do that, you can attend classes. It's a contract. It's, that's your job as a student athlete. There's no free, no way in there. But you can just walk in, don't have to practice, don't have to keep up your grades and all that. No, no, it doesn't work that way. So they, they get rid of that lie or myth right there. All right. Now, so at the University of Kentucky, those basketball players in the University of Connecticut and the other schools, I'm just naming those two, the cash value, and I'm going to break all that down tomorrow, the cash value of those scholarships is $140,000 a year. Times four, because a lot of student athletes fail they, within by that first semester in school, Christmas. A lot of student athletes flunk out of school. I'm not even going not let alone make it to the end of the year, school year. All right, so they constantly recruit and they get they get new freshmen to come in. But anyway, a hundred and forty thousand dollars. Times four is $560,000 in four years, over half a million dollars. Now, for those who are talking about getting paid, getting a paycheck, all right, let's say you elect the student athlete has a choice to get that $140,000 in a paycheck. This is a preview of tomorrow. Go online right now. And type in any search engine, tax calculator. Tax calculator. And if you type in 140000 and you're single, which most college athletes are single, the tax bite. Your tax burden on one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year is forty four thousand five hundred and ninety two See all you people with all the sense and being all emotional about should they get a paycheck, you haven't even factored that in so one hundred and forty thousand dollars is no more is no longer one hundred and forty thousand dollars because you have to pay the federal government off the top. $44,592. That's the federal government. We haven't gotten to the local government who's going to get a bite of that, too. Now, the other numbers, so, is it better to take – me as a college athlete, former college athlete, I'm glad, I'm glad there wasn't no choice in that. 
because I got the full cash value back when I was in at my school. The cash value of my scholarship was probably a little bit over $50,000 a year, maybe close to sixty, but definitely over $50,000 a year. So in four years, I got $200,000 worth of value totally untaxed. Medical, I mean, health insurance, covered, 100%. All food and meals particularly, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't eat all those meals. Tuition, travel, personal trainer, all that, all included. It was not free. Once again, I signed a contract. They do the same thing today. So tomorrow we're going to go through the contract. We're going to go through more cash value. We're going to look at, okay, if this if this student athlete took $140,000 in the form of a paycheck, I already told you, like I say, for the people listening today, tomorrow we're going to bring this calculator out again. You can go online, pick out tax calculator. On that note, uh, let me go back to my studio. Tomorrow we're going to go to solutions. Um dealing with um, um, should college athletes get paid. And we're also going to talk about works. Because a better use, a better word is compensate, because they're already getting compensation. They're getting tax-free compensation. All right. And what people, a lot of people that are saying, well, they should get paid. What you're doing is you're taking them from a tax-free compensation model into a tax compensation model. And the typical 17, 18, or 19-year-old, the typical college student knows nothing about taxes. They know nothing about tax shelters. They haven't even haven't taken, I mean, to be honest about it, they haven't even taken accounting 101 yet. We also want to bring up, um, and you can look this up before tomorrow's program, just put in broke professional athletes. Look at what some of these people, Latrell Srirel, but he was getting paid up $25 million a year as a professional basketball player. Broke. Allen Iverson, over a hundred million. Broke. Obviously, these guys never took a class in accounting one on one. And most people that think that college athletes should get paid uh, go with the taxable compensation model because that's what they're talking about. When you get all emotional and you say they should get a paycheck, most of these people haven't even ta- haven't even cracked the book on accounting. One-on-one. You can get on YouTube now, and the videos will walk you through it. So anyway, between the day and tomorrow, type in um, account. Uh, excuse me, uh, tax calculator because we're gonna we're gonna whip out the calculators tomorrow and go from there. Lavar Ball has a solution because we're gonna talk about solution tomorrow. And there is a niche there. People, I mean, a possible niche if people put it together. He's working on solutions right now. If 
there is a niche, a potential niche, I'll put it there, for people, high schools that don't want to go to college because college isn't for everybody, and they want to get paid. There are there's solutions right now. There are opportunities right now. You can, I mean, um, out of the side, you can go to Puerto Rico, you can go to Dominican Republic, you can go to the Philippines, you can go to Russia, different parts of Africa, different parts of Europe. You can play professional ball right out of high school now and get paid. You're not going to make, the, you know, $100 million, but you're going to get paid. Now, you're going to be compensated with a taxable paycheck in most cases. So those opportunities exist right now. What LeVar Ball is talking about starting is starting a league right here in the United States where I, I forgot his total business model, but certain players you'll be earning what, anywhere from 1000 to probably no more than maybe $3,000 uh, a month. And then it's it won't be a full 82-game season like the NBA. <clears throat> It'll be like run during the offseason when the NBA is not in, in session. But he, he has a legitimate idea that if he gets some backers, could fly. I think uh, Ice Cube has a three-on-three league now. I don't know if they get paid for that. Um, I think Allen Iverson's part of that. He might, I'm sure he's getting some type of compensation. But So, anyway, so those are the alternatives that players have right now. But if you um coming out of high school and you don't want to go to college, However, for those who, because this is all really all about niche markets, a lot of players that want to go into the NBA, National Basketball Association, uh, most of them, as we know, typically get there through the collegiate system, NCAA. That's how most of the NBA, so if, that, if that's your goal, That for right now, that's the primary way to get in. And it's, you know what, it's not even, it's really the way basketball is being globalized at this moment because you do have players from different parts of the world, some from Africa, some from India, some from Europe, China now, that are in the National Basketball Association. So it's truly a global game, and it's going to become more global, and you're going to see, because it's happening already, less play basketball players coming in from NCAA and more from other places around the globe. Football will probably stay the same. But we're going to take the cash value of a football scholarship because football is a more expensive sport than basketball. So tomorrow we're going to, take, we're going to get down with the statistics uh, from – uh, football on a college level and the cash value of that and the cash value of um, uh, a broader view of um, the cash value of uh, scholarships on a basketball level, all of which are, all, all scholarships are non-taxable forms of compensation. And we're going to put it on the table and then compare it to 
a paycheck, which is a each paycheck is a taxable event. For me, I rather take the non-taxable scholarship, but that's me. So anyway, uh, get on your tax calculators. Have that out for tomorrow. Um, if anybody's got any comments on it, now we got a few minutes left. We got money. Got three minutes left. Just press one. If not, we'll save that for tomorrow. Um, let me see. Let me. You know, I'm gonna end this podcast on Malcolm X uh, as we started because he basically sums up all the people that think black athletes are getting shafts. We need to do what Malcolm X says. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, up, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen.